two and a half years ago, I get an email in my inbox from my guest today, Mike. And he said, despite spending 15 years in the ad career, he has now made a mug and wanted to talk about this mug and would I be interested in his mug. And honestly, when you get an email like that, you should get on a call and find out why this guy thinks his mug is so exciting and worth your time. Mike spent 15 years in the ad career before suddenly having an existential crisis and realizing what the hell are you doing? Very similar to many of us that have been in that world before. Um, then found himself in Japan making what I'm now holding up for those of you on YouTube is the Obi mug. Genuinely, probably the only mug I have used virtually almost my entire life every day since it arrived a couple of years ago. Mike, welcome. And how the hell did you end up in Japan designing a mug? Uh, thank you. Um, what a warm, what a warm intro. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me. It's sincerely, it means a lot to me. Um, how did I wind up in Japan? What a great question. Uh, after I'd say 10 years in advertising, um, 10 good years where I felt very lucky to be there, I wound up starting to have this feeling that kind of snowballed over the next couple of years. I wound up after changing positions and trying to get raises and changing companies and all that stuff, narrowing down to what I thought was the problem, which is I... I phrase it to myself that I need to uh, re reconsider my relationship to work. That's how I put it to myself. Now, I didn't know what the answer was, but I knew what the answer wasn't, which is staying where I was. And so I did something that uh, scared the shit out of me. I hope I can say this. I don't know if this is... Say whatever the fuck you want, Mike. All right, there you go. Um scared the shit out of me, which is probably the first time in my life I ever like took a leap without knowing at least where I wanted to land. And I, I quit. And I, my, my idea was I was going to spend about three months doing nothing, specifically doing nothing. Um, and that the, the idea there was just like, shake up the etch-a-sketch. I just need to like cleanse my soul and just kind of like get it all out of my system. After those three months, I thought, okay, so I'm going to do this. I'm going to do an exercise, which is going to be very specifically not business focused or career focused or financially focused, and instead be a, a cathartic exercise for myself, scratching the itch that I think is there. And once this is done, this relatively short project, two, three months, um, I'll go back to my career. Uh, and that was the first domino to fall, really, that led me to getting to Japan. Uh, more specifically, I eventually decided to make a coffee cup. Coffee cup because uh, at first, I tried to figure out what to make. This is a big lesson for me. I didn't know what to make. I wanted to make something I was proud of, something that was beautiful, something that was physical, unlike all those... PowerPoint presentations I had dedicated my entire adulthood to creating. Uh, but I, I wanted to make the bar low enough so someone like me could actually complete the task. Uh, and I wanted to make something that was... My buying habits as a, as a consumer and a person, I get weirdly obsessive with looking for the best of anything. And it's, it's never anything I actually care about. It's always like pants what are the best pants in the world? And I read all the wire cutter reviews and watch YouTube reviews about pants. I'll spend a month looking for the best pants. And I'll, I always like to find like the sizzle reel of the, the, the guy who was the head of design at Apple and, and quit his career to, to travel the world to make the best pants. And he made the best pants and there's only one pair of pants. And uh, I wanted that version of a coffee cup one day. I'm just sitting there in the morning, having coffee. And I love coffee. I love great coffee. I care a lot about where the beans come from and the process in which to grind up the beans and all that stuff. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at the coffee cups I have. And they're all like, like one has the Instagram logo on there because I was at some meeting on Instagram. And they gave me one. And then one had a hotel logo. And then I was just like, oh, these suck. I want like the coffee cup. And I went online to try to find one and I couldn't find them. I could only find like 
smart cups and uh, like I didn't want that. I just wanted like I wanted the Jiro Dreams of Sushi cup. I wanted the cup cup. And so I thought, hey, this should be easy enough. I mean, how hard could a cup be? Uh, you know, two years later or whatever, <laughs> we had the Ovi. Um, I, there Japan's- is that great expression, right, of why did you write such a long letter? Because I didn't have time to write a shorter one. And, you know, when 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 the cup arrived in the mail for me a couple of years ago, what struck me about it is you wrote that shorter letter, right? You have clearly consolidated down into design form the essence of what a mug is. And this is not, regular listeners will know, this is not usually sort of where my brain goes. This is not sort of the language I would use to describe something like a coffee cup, but it is. And brickroad.com, check it out. It is just the simplicity of it that I think makes it so, so remarkable. So you've never made one of these before. PowerPoint design might be as far as your design had gone really in the past, ready for pitch decks and things in agency world, helping sell more soda to kids and all that crap we all used to do. And so what part of your brain came together and what did you have to go through in order to end up with the I Dream of Sushi cup? Yeah, uh, what a great question. And the answer is just an absolute mess. And I'll kind of walk through that a little bit. But I will say website is getbrickroad.com. Just saying that brickroad.com, I think used to go to some pizza place. I don't know where it goes now. Uh, but but getbrickroad.com is, is the website. Uh, as far as the consolidation process of the idea, I I think I share this with a lot of people who start things. It was just one mistake after another. It was just me trying to make something that I had drawn on a moleskin pad one day. Um, of course, it and- was a moleskin pad, by the way. I mean, of, of course, right? <laughs> of course you're in New York, you're in the ad industry. There's a law that says you're not allowed to write on paper if it's not in a moleskin book. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a pile. It's like a graveyard of these that were given out with different ones as Unilever. Once says Facebook, you know, given out at, at keynotes or whatever. Uh, funny enough, back here, I don't know if this shows. Yeah, so back, let's see how my hand works. This is like a prototype graveyard here of different types of cups I tried to make. And uh, essentially, thematically, the same thing happened over and over and over until I wound up in Japan, which is the the constraints that making something physical and tangible kept introducing themselves, forcing me to reduce and reduce and reduce and reduce the idea until one day I might actually have this one. And for those of you listening, as opposed to watching what Mike's got behind him on his shelf is like a pastel rainbow of uh, of mug prototypes. And we'll get to the question in a minute of why on earth do you have a chopping board also? nailed to your wall behind you but but let's stick to the pastel rainbow for a minute absolutely okay so this this was the the very first i'd say like pretty true to what we actually wound up making prototype it's made of concrete so that's a i don't know you can hear that uh that was my original idea was to make it out of concrete um goes back to your original question uh as far as what um, someone without a design background, what was driving me, that idea of making something permanent and physical, I wanted that to be that kind of more brand ethos to be baked into the product from day one. Uh, and so concrete is something that stays around forever. So for instance, when I briefed the uh, family who makes the product in Japan, I briefed them using only visuals. They don't speak a lot of English. I don't speak any Japan. Japanese. So like what I did is brief them with like, you know, a brutalist Soviet building. And I said, I want a cup that feels like that. And a couple other of those images. So very much like tying together brand and product. So that product was a artifact of what the brand is supposed to stand for and, and vice versa, as opposed to, as you know, taking that, that toothpaste that already exists and then layering a brand on top. But back to your question, um, each constraint I ran into, I would have a crisis, a panic attack, and then I'd say, okay, so what can I make? So for instance, I have 
six or a dozen concrete cups laying around in my apartment and here in the office. And that's because I, I really wanted to make it out of concrete. I found prototype uh, partners in the States. I made iterative versions of it until I was ready to go into more like sizable scale manufacturing. And then a wonderful woman named Shira in uh, Prospect Heights let me know that concrete is toxic to drink from. Good to know. Good, great to know. Excellent to know. It hit me over and over and over until uh, eventually I, I took this prototype. And while I was in Berlin, they have a lot of concrete there. The artistic uh, edge is something that I was, I was looking to have baked into the product. Um, I happened to be at a cafe, used a coffee cup um, that had a really interesting, unique feel to it. Uh, I picked it up and it said the word Marwasa on the bottom. I took a picture of it on my phone, forgot about it. A couple of weeks later, when I'm back in New York, I'm looking through my pictures and I see that. So I start Googling it. I realized that Marwasa is the name of a porcelain factory run by the Matsubara family. They've been doing it for over 100 years. All they make is porcelain products, mostly coffee cups. That's all they've ever done. Uh, and I thought these are the people I need to find. These are the I need to convince them to work with me on this. And so this concept I had had been reduced and 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 shaved down and forced to be the truest essence of what I had in mind. Um, and I, I took this over to Japan and I put it on the table. And Kashiro, the CEO, and I. Uh, sat there and talked about it for a couple hours. And I asked them to take this and then make their version of it. Make the cup you've always wanted to make. No compromises. Don't worry about if there's an addressable market. I just want your passion and your vision to live within the creative constraints that I've brought in with the brand. Um, and eventually wound up with the uh, with the Obi. If I remember rightly, you cold called these guys, right? And kept calling until someone who understood any English came to the phone one day? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I love uh, that you say, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, of course, Dax. Of course I cold called them without speaking any Japanese and them not speaking any English. That's not normally a, of course, Dax type answer. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I guess not. I guess to me, you know, I was thinking about this conversation today, a couple hours ago, and, and I guess I was thinking about what I would want to bring up as something if I went a couple of years into the past and I would tell myself something. Um, I think I think something that I was doing there is something that I had to do as a as a kid, uh, in uh, for survival reasons, and something that in my best moments in advertising I, I did, um, which was. In that moment, I had like a clarity of vision. I thought that's exactly what I'm, I'm looking for these folks uh, to lend me their expertise with actually getting this thing made and, and making it with the level of expertise that uh, I have in mind. Um, but also, wow, this fits the kind of the journey of actually making something out of passion and not just the bottom line uh, vibe that I've been going for this whole time. And so, with that as like the the marker, the center of gravity that I knew how to get there. Honestly, I never thought about not getting it done. It was just, let's keep hammering away at it until I, I get myself in the room. And uh, it wasn't just cold calling. It's embarrassing. I mean, it was, it was, it was phone calls, text messages, WhatsApp, emails. I filled out their RFP form in English and in Japanese, Instagram, like every, I just did everything. Um, First couple of months, they never responded to any of it. And then eventually they would respond, but they would respond in Japanese or in English that was clearly like put through a Google Translate thing. Um, eventually what did the trick was one night I was out with a friend of mine. We were having some beers and I was sharing my frustration because I was like, I, I'm right there. I'm right. I know exactly what it is and how to. And uh, so that night I went home and I sent, I sent the CEO's personal email account uh, a one sentence email because I thought maybe the fact that I'm sending it in English, multi paragraph PDFs, and like I'm trying to plead my case. Maybe instead of trying to plead my case from here, what I need to do is get into the room. So, really, what I need to do is just get into the room. What's the best way I can think to do that? I sent a one sentence email and it said, I request a meeting with your CEO on Monday morning at 10 a.m. or whatever time. 
And he responded within hours and he said, okay, I'll see you here. And that was on a Thursday night. You know, I was on a plane on Friday and got to Tokyo and then down to Tajimi. Uh, and the rest is history. So that, that, that's how I wound up in that room. I love it. And it sort of leads us a little bit to the, the plus, plot twist here, I suppose, a little bit. This isn't really a story about a mug at all, right? I mean, you had a, you mentioned obviously the, the ad agency world and having been there for so many years myself previous, I know how that sucks the, the soul out of people if you let it. Um, what, you know, the, the mug, some of the revenue, your mission, everything you're trying to do is providing access to and support for therapy because therapy literally saved your life. Therapy has most likely helped the majority of our watchers and listeners of this show. It's had fundamental positive impact on my own and my children's. How do we get to how do we get to that point where therapy is the thing that had to save your life? Yeah, it, it's a really good question. Um, it's not a question I really considered until four or five years ago. And it, it, the question that I asked myself, which, you know, probably not a coincidence around the time that I was either had left or was, was working myself out of the advertising world was the, the question I asked myself was, uh, now that I know that, that that career isn't what I want to do long-term and, and more importantly, it can't save me. That's how I phrase it for myself. There's this wonderful phrase in, in the wire, uh, where, uh, the one detective says to McNulty, the job won't save you. You know, I, I, I think part of my crisis in advertising was, I kept expecting everything to be okay. I kept expecting me to finally be happy and content. And it, it simply wasn't working out that way. And so uh, what I started asking myself was, okay, uh, what would get me closer to doing something that might satisfy that part of me and, and make me feel like I'm actually working at something that I find meaningful and would be okay dedicating myself to with that, though, came another question, which is something I was always kind of curious about, but never seemed critical to answer, which is, all right, but also in order to answer what I want to do, how did I get here? How did I, because uh, I think, Dax, you know, some of this, um, but but not everybody listening would, I am probably the most fortunate person that I know, which is I was uh, born in Baltimore very rough neighborhood, very uh, underserved um, community. And uh, through a series of, I would say, very fortunate kind of happenstances, but also I had a, I had a drive to just get out, you know, and I, I didn't, I never knew where that came from. And uh, funny enough, a couple of years ago, I ran into my uncle in Florida and I asked him, Hey, I don't remember much about my childhood. Did I want to be a firefighter? Or a, astronaut or a ghostbuster or what and he said no you just kept telling everyone you wanted to leave <laughs> which so like i had that in mind as young as as it goes and uh i you know flunked my way through high school i failed my freshman year and then skipped a grade i was what they called an at-risk youth um and a lot of a lot of death in my family my mom died when i was younger and my uh, just the neighbor was so rough. My next door neighbor was murdered. It was just awful. So I wanted to leave and, uh, I wound up leaving. I wound up going to community college, um, for two semesters and then got into the university of Maryland. That story very similar to the Kashiro Japan story, which is, uh, I had a girlfriend that got into college park university of Maryland, and I went to go visit her to help her move in. And I was like, Holy shit. I've never been on a college kid. This is the best thing I've ever seen. This is people playing volleyball and beautiful people laying out on, 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 you know, beach towels. Like why, why am I overworking at a gas station? I could, I could be here. I, I want to go here. And I went to the local community college and said, how do I get there? And they go, that's not, you barely graduate high school, buddy. That's not going to happen. So then I went down to the university of Maryland and pled my case until a woman named Jennifer Nordstrom was walking by me 
hooping and hollering in the admissions office. She met with me and I told her, uh, I'll, I, I will do anything to get here's where I need to go. And she made me a deal. She said, all right, you go and you go to the community college, you get on the Dean's list was the threshold. Uh, so 3.5 to 4.0, uh, for two semesters, you prove it to me and I will let you in myself. I'll, I'll kind of wave all the other SAT score stuff, all the high school stuff. If you are who you say you are, do it. And then I'll let you in. And that happened. All of that happened like clockwork. Uh, went to college, advertising, blah, blah, blah. Now we're here. So when I'm, when I'm kind of doing a forensics on how I got here, why me? Because it, it's not that I'm inherently talented in any way. I'm not like the best looking person. I'm not, I can't, I don't have a vertical leap that, uh, you know, makes me a great candidate for something. Uh, all I could think of was therapy. That's the only thing I did that, that I don't know anybody else that did at a young age. Um, which then when I think about therapy, it was just, I, I don't know if you remember this, but there used to be a radio show called Loveline that was on in the 90s and the 2000s. I used to listen to Loveline when I was a kid, every night, two hours. So. I really thought, and I still think, I used to listen to that radio show because I thought it was funny and crass and they talked about sex and drugs. I think that kind of instilled in me, it's okay to just leave if you're growing up in a underprivileged or underserved situation. And therapy is pretty important for just about everybody, but especially if you have some hard stuff going on. So with that identified as, as how I got out and why I am the way I am versus the community I grew up in. When I wrote down the like four to eight things that I wanted out of this creative exercise, um, I knew that one thing that I didn't like about the advertising world was how pessimistic it was. Um, obviously, very, you know, nickel and dime. Let's all like try to make as much money as possible. But more than that, in the past couple of years, as, as you know, there's been a drive for brands at the highest level. These are billion dollar brands to create mission statements that resonate with, with people, right? And it would be my job as a strategist in some capacity to help them create that. And, and over and over and over and over, the conversation would go, what does our community care about? I would bring it back to them. Uh, saving, the, uh, saving the environment, climate change. And I would hammer home to them. It's important as a brand that you not just say this, you have to do something, you have to commit something. And they would just refuse everything. They wouldn't do it because, well, next quarter and shareholder value and we don't know and da, da, da. And that drove me nuts. So before I even knew I was making a cup or apparel or books or anything else, I wrote down, get, uh, give 5% to therapy. Because I thought, I don't know what I'm going to make, but that's a cause I care about. I'm passionate about it. It's my belief that everybody should go to therapy, but it's especially true for some people. And in my opinion, some of the people that need it the most, the people in these neighborhoods that have less than nothing, no access to anything. Everybody's forgotten about them or systems have been set up to block their access to things. If folks even are, you know, know how therapy and mental health could be useful. These are not folks who have $150 or $250 a week to, to pony up for something that it could take years to be helpful. So I just thought, look, if I make 50 bucks, whatever that, like I, that's that money, some of that deserves to go to those folks. And I wanted it to be actionable, not awareness. I didn't want it to be soft. And I wanted it to be revenue, top line revenue, not proceeds, not profits. I wanted it to be honest as shit. And I wanted it to actually make some differences in people's lives if, if anybody would buy this cup. Um, and that's it. Eventually, somebody asked me when the cup came out, what does therapy have to do with a cup? And I said, uh, you know, fuck off. <laughs> I, Good answer. I mean, do you, do yeah, you there, remember your first... Go on. Uh, I was just going to say, look, I, I look, I went through the exercise in my mind of tying together, oh, craftsmanship, consideration, time, thoughtfulness, and uh, therapy. But at the end of the day, I, I don't, I don't care. You know, like 
Yeah. Therapy is something that's important to me, important to a lot of people. And uh, that's really the, the heart of what drives us. Product is just our excuse to, to, to work with great craftspeople, to work with wonderful creatives who have a vision, um, to bring things into the world that people actually want to buy and they're happy after they purchased it. Um, and to allow us to provide therapy for people that need it. So the the brand excuse is not something I'm super interested in. It's just uh, something that, that keeps me up um, at night working on the brand and, and wakes me up early. That's but a nice, honest thing, right? Those mission statements and value statements are such bullshit. And to your point about them lacking in authenticity, it's such a, it's such a problem. We had... With Meet Fireside, we had um, a whole bunch of small business owners reach out to us because we were doing things like their social media, Facebook ads, et cetera. Me Too, Black Lives Matter were happening, and they're saying, should we make our Instagram profile black like everybody else is, right? I'm a chiropractor in Salt Lake City. Who's going to give a fuck if I do it? And if I then do it, are people going to care but negatively? Great questions. And the answer really is back down to that piece of authenticity. If you are going to make a statement, you better well believe it and you better well live by it. Not only because it's a shitty thing not to do that, but also because today your audience is going to look back and they're going to see that you said that. And then they're going to point out to you and all of your customers in the whole world that you didn't then live up to those things that you were talking about. And to your point, who cares if the mission is directly related to the product, if the product is just an excuse to bring attention to it? I am curious though, your first ever therapy session, did you go seek it out? Were you put in it? Do you remember it? Yeah, I remember it really well. I sought it out. Um, How old were you then? 17, 18. Still in Baltimore? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, me, me getting myself into therapy speaks, I think, to part of what, what I got at earlier, which is it's at least where I grew up, not a generally accepted, Hey, you've been through some stuff. You're having a hard time. Maybe get like, that's not an answer. Anybody really talked about. Um, I just basically knew from love line that that was something that they, you know, Dr. Drew and Adam would recommend kids who had been through tough times. Um, as well, I, you know, at that age, I hadn't identified a need for it. It's not like I was like, oh, I'm feeling anxious or depressed or I'm having trouble making decisions. I was still tough as nails. You know, I still had a lot of those defense mechanisms up from the way I grew up. And, uh, I wasn't really in touch with the way I was feeling on a day to day, but for me, I just knew academically, hey, you can't go through all that stuff and get out completely clean. So when I first started, I remember saying this to the first therapist I had, I wanted somebody to check my math. I just wanted somebody else in my head every now and then and just say, ah, maybe not this or hey, that's a good thing. Um, of course, you know, I've been in therapy ever since and eventually I would very much need it. Eventually the bill came due of all the stuff I had been through and I really needed an apparatus of uh, uh, supportive folks around me, people with uh, an understanding of, of mental health. And it, just as a aside, it was helpful for me, I think to get basically like, not only prepped, but kind of primed to go through the type of healing and uh, processing that I eventually had to do later in life when I had the, when I had the financial security and safety to do so. Um, so yeah, it all started with me just saying, Hey, seems like it would be a good idea. I wonder what happens. It's such a good way to phrase it. The first proper therapy I ever did was cognitive behavioral therapy. Carrie is her name. And, um, I remember walking into her office in Denver and saying, I'm not here to bitch and moan. I'm not here to cry, although obviously I might, but that's not why I'm here, right? I'm here because I did not learn good mental health practices up until this point in my life. I've just sold my company. Should be a happy moment, but 12 months into the day later, I've been kicked out of it, as frequently happens, and looking back was was most likely deserved. And when when you've set up one of the pillars of your own identity is your career or particularly a startup, 
then if you don't have those skills, when that pillar's kicked away, the stool falls over. We can really only manage to have three or four pillars. And I think those people that don't do therapy or those people that grow up with a jaded view of therapy, which I would argue is 90% still of, of England, um, don't understand that it is not about what you see in a sitcom laying down on a sofa, whiskey in hand, although that's a great fucking way to do therapy, bitching and moaning. And instead it is, it's more like going to a coach if you get it right and explaining to that person, this is the circumstances I failed to do optimally. What am I missing? What do you need to teach me? So the next time that shit comes around, I'm better primed and I can handle it better. It's like going for driving lessons, right? We're expecting everybody in the world to go off and get in a car without having any driving lessons. And eventually some people will figure it out and and many won't along yep. the way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, like, I, I'll, I'll mention this little trivia fact. Before I landed on brick roads, more succinct uh, form of uh, philanthropy, you know, giving back to allow people to get access to therapy. My first idea was it's, it's my experience that underserved communities don't have access to therapy. Uh, the kind of community I grew up, nobody really knows the role of therapy, as you said. Um, but particularly, and I say this as a dude just a, a a boring white dude that the amount of conversations i've had where men in their 30s 40s 50s are for months going through agony and and depression and uh they have figured out that the cause is their girlfriend wife job whatever and uh letting them know that one thing that could be helpful was talking to a therapist. Um, just about every one of those conversations, as I'm sure you know what I'm going to say, go, that's not, I don't need to talk to somebody. What I need is a new job, girlfriend, wife, da, 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 da. And so, uh, you know, I've refined this pitch over the course of 20 years or so. What I always say is, okay, all right, that's fine. I understand what you're saying. Uh, you go to the gym though, right? Yes. Okay. Do you go to the gym because you got hit by a car and you have a limp or do you go to the gym because you want to get stronger physically? Right. Okay. What if you just imagine therapy is the gym for the mind? Now, it's great to work on yourself. It's great to go to the gym and get stronger. It's great to go to therapy and get mentally stronger. Uh, even better is if you are a gym rat and you're dedicated to a healthy lifestyle and then you fall down the stairs, you bounce back maybe a little quicker. Maybe you're a little bit more resilient. And so when the bad things do happen, and they happen to everybody, uh, when it comes to our mind, going to therapy is a great way to build up those strengths and techniques to make you more resilient and stronger. When you do get laid off from the thing or you're, you get dumped because of the whatever, you know, that's, to me, it's, it's a lot of it is in prep for getting stronger and just a you know, raising my own tide as far as physical and mental health goes. That's right. A friend of mine was just walking along the sidewalk the other day and snapped his Achilles heel, which is huh. as somebody who loves to run is something that I think about far more than I would like my brain to do so. Nobody says to him, you know, what would have been a terrible fucking idea before this happened is if you stretched your ankle more. Right. Nobody's exactly. going to say that to him because, of course, of course, if he had had a better stretching habit, he probably wouldn't have snapped his Achilles heel walking on the pavement. It probably wouldn't have happened. And so it, it sort of baffles me. The, the bit about the boring white dude, I think, is interesting. There is definitely the majority of culture that feels like men should tough it up and get on with it. Um. Hivecast.fm publishes this podcast and uh, they also do Solo Dad. And Solo Dad is a podcast by Matt and Ben, who they're both uh, widows and they, you know, they have kids and they have this wonderful podcast of, of course, we have to suck it up and get on with it to a degree, right? Because life carries on. We have children. We have to now be the sole primary parental caregiver to our children. 
But they also talk very openly and I think quite welcoming and in a very helpful way to other dads who are going through the very same sort of thing. And I'm not discrediting the needs of um, of women and, and other genders, but I am certainly a big believer that men are lacking in a culture that allows them to feel comfortable to talk to other people about that. And that's why male suicide rate is, is what it is. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that, um, you know, I'll mention this as ties together a phrase I used earlier, the the bill comes due, like eventually all this stuff has to be paid. And so what I mean by that is, uh, okay, so I, I mentioned earlier that my mom passed away when I was younger, I, I just turned 14. I grew up in a household where she was not really super involved. So it was it was it was me, my older brother, and my dad for most of my upbringing. And uh, neighborhood, tough neighborhood, a lot of fist fighting, a lot of that kind of stuff. And so toughness, strength, it was measured in, yeah, but can you get back up after the fight and keep going? Can you make it through and, and, and keep trudging on? And look, there's, there's, there's honor and virtue in that 100%. However, with that, either uh, I'll call it toughness, resilience, blah, blah, blah. Uh, uh, grit is another good word for that. Um, a lot of times I think there's this halo effect of that just means you, you never talk about the way, uh, you're actually feeling about things to other people or to yourself. There's no vocabulary for this. There's no value in doing that. Why would I do that? And to be honest, it's something that I, I completely understand from not only a communal standpoint, but, uh, you know, the, the book that we're releasing through the Patreon is called Guerrilla Mindfulness. That comes from a phrase my therapist used for me when he was wondering, why the hell did you keep going to high school? If you're flunking out, nobody was checking on if you were there. You had no plans to go to college. And if you went to school, there'd be a, it's a roll of the dice, whether or not you're going to get home and not get your ass kicked or robbed. And I didn't know. I didn't know the answer. I didn't know. Now, that was a couple of years ago. I've gotten some uh, good work done on that. And the answer is that the brain's really good at disassociating when it needs to and focusing and optimizing for survival when things are tough, whether that's an acute one-off situation or long-term uh, trouble. And I'm very aware now that I didn't know how much I was hurting. And how vulnerable I was and how sad I was uh, until I was in a place that it was safe enough for me to feel that way. Because that wouldn't help me. That doesn't help me get home from school. That doesn't help me survive. You know, if I'm coming home bloodied or I'm going to the hospital, getting my face stitched back together because somebody was mad at me. Uh, what mattered is I got out. Then I could start the hard work of, uh, learning a little bit more about my experience, about how I felt about it. And that's a long and tough journey. So I guess that's all to say, I agree with you. I think the problems become exacerbated when you get in neighborhoods that are, are uh, have less access. Um, and then also the kind of other side of the coin, which is not only do I, I think that's kind of toughness over everything is something that's prevalent, but in some cases, I, I understand why it's there, you know? Mm -hmm. The key question, has it worked? Are you happy? I am very much at peace. Um, I am happier than I've, on the average, you know, I'm not living a 10 out of 10 every day. But I would say um, I, I am happier now than I've ever been in my life. Uh, it's not even close. And I used to say this, and it, it was true. Every day from like 18 on was the best day I'd ever had. I honestly, and this goes, to, we could have a long conversation about this someday. I loved 18 in one day, 18 in two days, 18 in three days, partially because I thought I was on borrowed time. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe I was going to college and Oh my God, I'm going to parties and people just play beer pong. It's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Uh, however, 
I also loved having these long-term goals and chipping away at, at, at achieving them until those started to turn on me a little bit. And I realized, as you said, uh, there's a book called the drama of the gifted child. And they talk about grandiosity and depression being a cycle. So having these grandiose, grandiose, uh, uh, ambitions of moving to New York, starting companies, da, da, da. every time I would succeed, maybe 90 minutes of happiness and then instant depression. What's my next thing? How am I going to get it? Um, after I left advertising, once I had figured out Brick Road and got the OB out, and pretty much the second it got any kind of attention, the, for instance, the, the a guy named Harley Finkelstein, the president of Shopify, uh, started talking about us on Twitter and Clubhouse just to age the story. And uh, that, that's great. wild in itself that Clubhouse is now aging something. Christ. I know, right? What a couple of years. So this is more than I ever could have asked for. A hundred times more than I ever could have dreamed of when I was growing up. And yet that's when the panic attack started. That's when things got real with my mental health. Fell into a deep, deep depression. Didn't know that's what it was until I had enough space to appreciate it. Um, and that's when, like I said, the bill came due and I got to do a lot of work on how I had been through again. Didn't really have the space and distance to be able to do that. That was a couple of years ago. Uh, since then, Life has been really great. It was great before that, but it really does get better every day. I think that having meaningful work and having conversations like this and having something like Brick Road, even though it, you know, being a being a founder is a lot of stress, a lot of hours, but at least I know what my center of gravity is way more than I did previously. I want to circle back in a minute to Brick Road and the future of the products, but you know, I asked the question, are you happy? Not expecting a one-word answer either way, but it is a question that could have a one-way answer. And I feel like you gave a very long and thoughtful response to it that sort of said, no, but. I'm sort of curious. The definition that you gave, let me ask the question in a different way. You gave a definition of how you feel and how life is today. Is that definition what you were hoping to achieve or were you hoping to achieve something different or greater and this is where you landed and are you happy where you landed um the answer is no this isn't what i intended no matter when we're talking about but just so i'm clear you're talking about a couple of years ago or when i was a kid or now after all this work after all this therapy the opportunity to use the skills that you learned right yeah yeah so i uh, yeah, I, I'm very careful when I answer questions like that because uh, what in, in me, in my own history, what I've observed is if there are too many 10 out of 10, I'm on cloud nine, I'm super happy days, uh, that means something's wrong, basically. <laughs> and what I mean is uh, every day is not supposed to be a 10 out of 10. Uh, if things are at a 10 out of 10 for too long, just me personally speaking, uh, that usually means there's a equal and opposite pendulum swing coming in the other direction. So what I try to do is achieve for myself, uh, a really good every day. So what I want is uh, a solid 7.5 rate out of 10 on an average day. When something good happens, 9 or 10. When something bad happens, whatever, 7, 6, 5. Uh, I, for me, I don't try to make that happy, that, the word happy. Uh, I try, I think about things like at peace. I think about things like I'm feeling safe. Uh, I feel like I, I think about things as um i'm enthusiastic and excited about the future these are things to me that seem to have longer term and stable value uh and i think maybe now that i'm saying it out loud the elasticity between you know a nine and a, a seven or six probably also allows me to uh 
appreciate the sevens as much as the nines and also kind of protect myself from the ups and downs of the, the unstable nature of the startup world and, you know, interpersonal issues. And so that's the reason why I stayed away from saying happy as a kind of a, an answer. Uh, but that's just the way I look at it. No, I think that's, I think that's a perfect, perfect response. And the idea of finding the things that are the more important markers in your life, like safety, sanctuary, community, are really the measures anyway, that at the balance of the day, one day we'll each have that moment where it's our last moment and we're looking back and we're going to, I don't know, we're going to look for, were we content? Did we do a good job? Were we happy to use that word again? I don't know. And I think it's probably each of those measures combined together that we'll look at and, and do the sum. I do want to circle back to Brick Road before we wrap. So what's the future? I know you mentioned uh, there's a mini OB now, OB being the mug that we were talking about at the top of this uh, top of this show. And by the way, practical questions. So two practical questions, actually. So you mentioned, I'm going to do it right next to the microphone. I don't know if people can hear that. The outside has this very unusual texture that you talked about. 75% of my kids, and I say it that way just for amusement factor, I have four. One of them cannot touch your mug. It creeps her the fuck out, like hates the feel of it completely. And the other three, yeah, you know, no issue. So the outside has this texture. I want to know about that. And on the inside, it's jet black and it's smooth. And I sort of abuse this thing as a coffee mug. So I have coffee in it in the morning, which usually leaves a taste in a mug. And then right now it is full of ginger, turmeric, and um, and hot water. So God knows why it doesn't taste a coffee when I drink that and vice versa. So before we talk about what's next for Brick Road, what is this thing made from? Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a great question. And it, it kind of goes back to a question you asked uh, towards the beginning. Um, so when I was working with the team in Japan, uh, they have a very specific manufacturing process. Uh, it's, it's not my area of expertise. I think they call it reduction firing, um, which involves, you know, they, they pull the clay out of the mountain there and they, they handcraft them and they uh, fire them. And then they suck the oxygen out of the room for a time and it creates this hyper dense material. And then they, they do it again. And when we were prototyping, um, they gave me the unglazed cup, basically what you're holding there without the glaze on the inside. And I thought I've never felt anything like this. It, it wasn't that I thought everybody would love it. So to, to the small sample set of your children, uh, it's perfect. It was that I had never felt anything like this. And I thought, I bet this is something pretty unique to Marwasa. This is, this is something that, uh, I really could only get from this journey across the world. Uh, and so I wanted that to play a role in the cup in some way. Uh, and for the uh, matte black glaze on the inside, where that came from was uh, the, the, the inspiration I gave that team was, number one, I wanted it to feel like a building, thus the hard edges and the weight and the size. The other thing is, this is in 2019, and the world was already kind of teetering on the edge of collapse a couple months out. Uh, and I thought I really want to, as a brand celebrate pluralism and contrast. So there's a lot of that in the brand. I don't say that publicly, but you know, the fact that it's a kind of high concept luxury brand, boutique brand, but we're making things like coffee cups and sweatshirts. I I like that, uh, clash, uh, internally, I call it strange alchemy. Um, but I wanted that the idea of contrast and pluralism to be present in the design of the cup in some way. And so that's why we decided to glaze the inside, but not the outside. Celebrate what Marwasa does and only they could do. Uh, and then also have contrast and that kind of battle between these two uh, philosophies, uh, like heavy industrious Brooklyn design with um, the care of Japanese porcelain, uh, thus the color treatment. I love that. I've often thought if you took a brutalism architectural building and you told it it had to now grow up in Austin or Portland or Boulder or somewhere like that, you may very well end up with a bit of a gentrified version of it that uh, that has this that <laughs> has this inside. Um, okay, let's talk practicality. So the OB mug, the mini is out or it's on its way? 
The mini is out, right? So we did the OB. It's now retroactively. It's now called the OB one. Okay, nice little Star Star Wars reference. Right. Uh, so my my promise was always to do limited run stuff, and I really like that. But we've had enough people over the years say, "Look, I get it, Buster, but seriously, you should just can you please make more? I really want to give it to my grandmother for uh, Christmas or whatever." So my split the difference thing was okay. Let's take an inspiration out of uh, sneaker culture. We can make limited run things. We can also make sequels to those things uh, or uh, modifications um, or different colorways. So to test that out, we uh, took the concept of the OV-1 and I thought, what would that be like if we made one that was a little bit more uh, you know, acceptable to a global community? The OV-1 is very big, it's 14 ounces. So uh, for everyone that's not a ridiculous person, what if there was an OV-mini? Uh, and how would the market respond? Would people still like it? So then we went from 700 units with the OB-1 to 3,000 units with the OB-Mini. Um, and we did the same manufacturing process. We did the same thing where we met with some really provocative photographers and asked them, don't make ads, make a vision of something you'd want to hang on your wall. Uh, and let's find a way to, to have a copy part of it. Um, Wonderful photography, uh, a guy named uh, Andrew French based out of uh, uh, Manhattan. And we put it out last year, fastest selling thing we ever made. Um, with that, we then had to open up a warehouse in Bend, Oregon. So now we got faster shipping. Um, so that taught us a lot. That being our hero product is pretty interesting. Um, but it also taught us that while we can have this kind of limited run boutique uh, scarcity obsession. Um, people are pretty interested to see where these franchises go when you can continue kind of nurturing it and, and uh, torturing it to see what, what else comes out of that design. That's really great. Um, best of luck with it. It's such an incredible story, how you got here, why you do it, how you're helping get people access to therapy. It's 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 really admirable. I'm delighted that after this whole journey and all the work you did, you've reached a, a definition of satisfaction, contentment, peace in life. It's a, it's the ultimate, almost the ultimate sort of top of the pyramid privilege, right? That we can earn ourselves, that we can work towards and achieve. Really appreciate you coming on getbrickroad.com to go check out what Mike's doing. We'll put the link in the show notes on YouTube. And, and if you're listening to this on the podcast, it'll be there in the notes as well. I also want to wrap today by pointing you to dax.fyi. I'll put a link on there to a program we had called Suddenly Successful. A friend of ours, Dave, talked about the um, uh, honesty and authenticity uh, that Mike and I were just talking about in your marketing. Um, Dave's episode in that is is very much worth listening to, particularly if you're a small business owner and you're stuck dealing with that sort of question yourself. And as always, thank you to Hivecast.fm and Podamp.fm for helping us with the episode.